All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Uh, pretty exciting for me today. Oh, by the way, I recorded this yesterday, so I have not watched the debates yet. That was a strange sentence. I don't know if it works uh, mathematically, but uh, maybe I should say it another way. This this was recorded before whatever happened last night, so I'll be taking that in with you um, in terms of what Monday's news looks like. I'll be I'll be taking that in as you do today, but uh, I got no comment on it because it hadn't happened yet when I recorded this. But today on the show, uh, I was very excited to talk to Larry Clark, the photographer, artist, uh, and filmmaker, because he looms large in the in the dark corners of uh, the photographic art world and also in film. And uh, he's he's a real dude. He's the real deal. He's the the a, a real photographer, a real artist who did some uh, pretty amazing work. So I, I'll be talking to him in a little while. I I enjoyed. The film Kids, which he directed and Harmony Kareen uh, scripted, but I really love the film Bully. I, I think it's a raw, uh, visceral uh, masterpiece of a movie. But also, you know, Larry's books, uh, Teenage Lust, and the first book Tulsa, which was a basically documentary photographs of him, not not really him, but his friends Tulsa, you know, involved in shooting drugs hanging out, shooting guns, just, uh, you know, being being the 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 sort of Oklahoma criminals uh, that they all were at that time in the early 70s, late 60s. And the first time I really came in touch with his work was when I was at Boston University and I was uh, very into photography. I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. I was a very, a very um, a prolific photographer in high school, a little darkroom rat. And I did a lot of photographs, and I and I really uh, loved doing it. But I started to realize that the technical side of it was not my bag. Uh, there's a lot of chemistry involved, and to control that part of the art, uh, you needed a, a lot of. Um, it required some, you know, experimentation and some know-how and some chemistry. And I, it was not. I didn't like that part. I like I like shooting and making the picture and watching it come to life in the fixer. Uh, or in the developer. I, I liked watching the image appear. I liked, uh, you know, focusing the enlarger and seeing the negative. And, but, you know, the terms, that, you know, when it comes down to mixing my own chemicals, figuring out papers, figuring out uh, percentages of chemicals to get effect and all that stuff wasn't my bag. It just, I, I don't have the, the discipline. Uh, I didn't focus on that. So I, I let it get away from me. But when I was in college, I took a, uh, I was a, I had an art history. Of, what was it? A film criticism minor, which involved, uh, which was part of the art history department. And just by a fluke, I took a history of photography class with a guy named Carl Kirenza, who was also a photographer, but was at BU for years. And it was within the art history department. It was the history of photography. It was a year-long survey class. And he started the, the first semester at the cave paintings. And he moved up and, you know, the second semester began at the introduction of photography which i thought was a brilliant way to it changed my life that class but uh during the second half of the class where photography you know sought to be established as an art form which was difficult once everybody 
was able to take pictures. And the two schools of thought in my recollection of the class were you had documentary photography and you had art photography. And these were the, the two contexts under the umbrella of photography as art. Uh, those were the two intentions, the two modes and they crossed over obviously at some point, but there was, you know, there was long sort of discussions about whether you can manipulate the image or manipulate the negative and it, it, does it maintain its integrity? Uh, you can't do that with documentary photographs. All of these conversations I imagine have been annihilated now to some degree, given that, you know, digital uh, photography and has almost completely eradicated, uh, you know, the process. And given everybody a certain amount of control over manipulation and all that. But it, I, I don't know. I'm not in that circle. But, you know, in those in the you know, in that survey class, you know, we were introduced to uh, Larry Clark's Tulsa and Larry Clark's Teenage Lust. And I saw some of those images when I would go down to New York. And uh, right now, you know, Larry's got uh, a, a big uh, a big show. Uh, it's an exhibition of his work at the new UTA Artist Space at 670 South Anderson Street here in Los Angeles. It's up until October 29th. I have not gotten down there yet. I need to get down there because his work is very, very visceral, very raw, very, um, you can feel it. So let me just say this, the the Now Hear This Festival is less than three weeks away. Come hang out with me and my producer, Brendan McDonald. We're doing a special WTF event on the Saturday of the festival, but there are more than 30 podcasts live all weekend. It's at the Anaheim Marriott, October 28th through October 30th. Go to nowhearthisfest.com and use the offer code WTF to get 25% off a three-day general admission pass. That's nowhearthisfest.com, offer code WTF. You can go to uh, WTFpod.com to, to get the any of the last few tickets for Carnegie Hall. And I've got Chicago coming up and uh, Santa Barbara, uh, uh, USC at Santa Barbara at Campbell Hall. It's all there at WTFpod.com. Nashville, uh, Tallahassee. There's a lot of dates coming up. All the dates in Connecticut and upstate New York next year. But they're, they're all available at WTFpod.com. Did I want to share that email? Yeah, here it is. Uh, subject line, Miles Davis, Jack Johnson. Dear Mark, as a loyal listener, I rarely miss an episode, but this week I realized I skipped your Labor Day conversation with Joseph Arthur. I'm so glad I went back and listened because in the part of your discussion about Miles Davis, you mentioned your love for Jack Johnson, which is an album, which is indeed the soundtrack for a documentary about the first black heavyweight champion of the world, which my father, Larry Geringer, directed. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Geringer, it's probably Geringer. I called him up to let him know and he gave me all the details. It was 1970. My dad was a student at Columbia Film School and the documentary was his thesis project. The producer he worked for later stole director credit, but my dad still got credit at Columbia. Ugh, show business. He'd already enlisted the great actor Brock Peters to narrate the film, but he wanted Miles' trumpet to provide his own version of Johnson's voice. See, look at that, arty jazz thinking. It's beautiful. In the first recording session, Miles and his band came into the studio. My dad ran his movie, and Miles just played, reacting in real time to what he was seeing on screen. Later, additional cuts from the sessions were added to augment the initial recording, which is how that five-disc version of the complete sessions that you own came to be. It's one of Miles' most overlooked albums, but a great one, and you're mentioning it Put a huge smile on my father's face and mine. By the way, the documentary went on to be nominated for an Academy Award, but lost to a little movie you might have heard of called Woodstock. Thanks again for the mention, and let this be a reminder to all your listeners to never skip an episode. Ah, Alex, 
Geringer. I'm hoping I'm saying it right. Thanks. I love that email, buddy. And I love that record. And uh, now I got to see that documentary. Larry Clark, you know, in this conversation, I think what is what stands out outside of me not being able to get a word in is, you know, his commitment to the craft and what it meant to be a printer and what it meant to you know have control over that element and what it meant to live in your art. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of feelings about about Larry's uh, film work, certainly. And I think even less people know about his photography work but the self-publishing of the book and the book being an object of art in and of itself i mean i i just uh i i moved in and sort of uh, astounded when you know when i talked to real artists who are possessed with that spirit of of creating art and sometimes you can't read it as that exactly in the moment but the more you listen to larry you realize that you know his his vision and and his compulsion you know outside of drugs was was art and living within it so this is me and the photographer filmmaker artist larry clark here in the garage so larry clark in los angeles what a you're pretty comfortable out here right yeah yeah yeah. you know i've i've uh, i've made a number of films here sure i've made uh, was up Rockers here? Yeah. By the kids from South Central LA. Um, another Day in Paradise? Another Day in Paradise, Ken Park. The first time I heard of you, I was taking, a, I took a year long survey of photography yeah. in, at, at Boston University. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for some reason, the guy spent the entire first semester starting at the cave paintings and moving up till the introduction of photography. Mm-hmm. And then we got into the difference between documentary and art photography. And mm-hmm. that was the first time I saw the images from Tulsa. Uh-huh. And, uh, the, you know, the other book, The uh, Teenage Lust. Teenage Lust, yeah. Right. Second book. So, yeah. Right. But you were shooting, because I'm looking at the catalog for the show that opens here in L.A. soon. What gallery is that at? Uh, the gallery at, is at UTA Artist Space. In, uh, in in L.A. And then you got, there are images in there back that go back way before even Tulsa. Go back of the first uh, images, the first serious images I ever took. Uh, there's a couple of, of uh, uh, pictures from 1961. And what, how old were you? Uh, I was born in 43, so in 61 I was, what, 18? 18, 19. Where, yeah. You grew up in, in Oklahoma. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, uh, my goal in life was to get out of Oklahoma. <laughs> Right. And uh, so when I was 18, well, my my mother and father had this little mom and pop baby photography business. Really? Photographing babies. Yeah, right. And my mother was great at, at, at photographing babies, right? Yeah. And what so, was the trick? Uh, the trick was um, um, she was just great at it. Distracting and, uh, them with a little toy? With everything, everything, yeah. everything. <laughs> you know, she knew every every trick uh, 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 in the book. And did they process the film people. there? Uh, well, well, what happened was my my father was a traveling salesman, right? And that's how I met my mother. What is he selling? Uh, books, uh, yeah. door to door magazine subscriptions sure. for the for the Reader Service Bureau in Chicago. Uh-huh. And like back then, my father was a manager, and he would go around the country from town to town and hire crews of young people to go knock on doors uh, and sell these magazine subscriptions, right? Yeah. Uh, and people would buy the magazine uh, subscriptions, and anyway, that's that's how they made the living. It was very, very big back in the fifties. When you were in Tulsa, were you like, were you reading the Beatniks? Were you looking for that kind of life? <laughs> when I was in Tulsa, I didn't know nothing. Um, 
Um, but did you learn how to shoot at your mom's place? Uh, my mother um, and and my father, as I said, when uh, uh, he came back when I was twelve, and my mother and he got a job at a furniture store uh, selling furniture, and uh, then I think selling cars. Yeah. For a year, and my mother took a job with uh, Lloyd Roberts Photography, who did baby photography. Right. And they did some door-to-door uh, photography where you go into these small towns yeah. and knock on doors. Uh, it's uh, a photographer and a caller. The caller knocks on doors. Yeah. And uh, says, oh, you have a new baby. I think her name is Deborah. Could I see her, please? Yeah. And the husband's away working. And the caller talks his way into the house. Right. And then the photographer, my mother, goes in and makes photographs. And she had a roll of flex with a flash on it. And then like a screen, like a little movie screen, a pull-down screen. Yeah. Uh, and they'd throw a, co- uh, throw a blanket over a coffee table, put the baby on it. Yeah. And have the mother standing <laughs> at the edge of the table right outside a camera range. Yeah. And set the baby up and uh, sna- and make the baby laugh and snap a picture before the baby fell backwards, right, right. right? And the mother would catch her. And then there was a second uh, strobe, a slave unit pointed um, at the background, which uh, went off when the when my mother took the picture with the flash and the rolly, yeah, and it washed out all the shadow, right. So you got this. It looked like a studio portrait photography. Oh yeah. And so when I was fifteen, I was forced into the business, uh, and I was knocking on doors for my mother and making calls. Yeah. And then uh, when I was sixteen or uh, almost sixteen. Uh, I started making, uh, 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 doing baby photography and driving around with this caller, Frank Sparger, who was quite a character, ex- <laughs> ex-con and everything, a real, a real, uh, real hustler, a huh? real hustler con yeah. man type, but a great guy. Uh, um, so you're learning um, the whole lingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so um, I was like 15 and skinny and uh, um, a real late bloomer, and I stuttered so bad I could hardly talk, and I hated myself. And uh, I had to go knock on doors and, and talk my way in. And then I had to go uh, and in and uh, be the photographer and make the babies laugh and set the baby on the coffee table right. with the blanket and put dolls on my head and they'd fall off and I'd go, uh-oh, and make the baby laugh and take the picture, man. Yeah. And I hated it and I hated what I was doing. I was forced into working for my parents. In the mom and pop business, and but you learned how to shoot. A baby photographer, but it put a camera in my hand. Yeah. I didn't learn how to shoot because it was just a rolling and two flashes. Right, and I never thought photography was anything but photographing babies. I didn't know anything, but I always had a camera. Always had a camera in my hand, and if I didn't have a camera, because I would go to my friend's house after after work. Um, uh, and shoot amphetamine. Yeah. And um, when you were fifteen, um, when I was fifteen, um, and uh, almost sixteen, so I shot uh, amphetamine every day for three years, and I graduated from high school when I was eighteen, and I knew I had to get out of Tulsa. Who started the shooting? Like, like when did that? Like, when did it go from like taking Benzedrine to to shooting it? When did that become? Well, after the war. Yeah. World War Two, uh, where uh, they gave all the soldiers speed uh, yeah. amphetamine. Uh, after the war, um, um, uh, they started making this nasal inhaler called Velo, and, yeah. it, was, and, and it was made by the Pfeiffer Company, which is a famous company. Right? Yeah. They make Viagra and uh, Pfizer, yeah, hundred of Pfizer, right? Yeah. And uh, they made this little nasal inhaler called Velo for seventy-five cents, right? And you opened it up, and it was a plastic tube inside. You stuck it up your nose, yeah. and it cleared up your sinuses. Right. It was full of amphetamine. 
So someone discovered that some ex-cons or somebody's, you know, older yeah. brother, right? Yeah. And um, uh, <laughs> and uh, you would twist off the top and yeah. break it open, and inside was a piece of cotton soaked in menthol and other shit right. and um, and uh, amphetamine, and we would put the cotton in a, in a little uh, cup or something and uh, add an eyedropper full of water and work it up, and the grease would float to the top, and the grease was pure amphetamine mixed with menthol and yeah. stuff, and we would shoot it, you know, inject it, you Did know. Did you feel the menthol in your veins? And uh, <laughs> you would get this incredible rush and this incredible flash, yeah. and some people would dance across the room, and yeah. some people would just open their mouth and, like, fall backwards on the bed, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, all different kinds of reactions. Uh-huh. But I was this hyper kid that stuttered like mad, yeah. and I had, like, I, I, I mean, I must have had a terrible... Um, 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 ADD, right? Right. Um, but then no one knew what that was. So the, meta- the amphetamine calmed you down? The, ca- the amphetamine made me, not like my friends, totally calm. <laughs> yeah. I went from this hyperactive kid who couldn't talk right. to this most calmest person in the world. <laughs> and, and I started photographing my friends when I was 18. Uh, I left uh, Oklahoma. Luckily, wait. Had my, you shot the, when you left? Had you shot Tulsa? Uh, I mean, no, was it, no, 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 no? You came I'd, back. I I I I I taken a few pictures of my friends with my mother's Rolleiflex, uh, right. and and you'll see two of those pictures in uh, the show. My first two serious photographs because I always had my camera. So, um, uh, and I was in this secret world because uh, there, there wasn't supposed to be drugs back then. Eisen, Eisenhower was president. It was supposed to be mom's apple pie and white picket fences. There was no drugs. There was no alcohol. There was no child abuse. There was no mother and father, yeah. alcoholics, drug addicts. Uh, there was there was nothing, you know. But, but at that point, you'd already come in contact with a with a few hustlers, and you knew there was a racket. Listen, man, I knew everything, you know, and I was hip to rhythm and blues, yeah, right. and, I, and you know, uh, there was a black station uh, in uh, Tulsa. Uh, uh, a guy named Frank Berry would come on the radio like at eleven o'clock at night and play Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, Jimmy yeah. Reed, you know, Lightning Slim, yeah everything so when i was like 12 years old i'm like under the covers uh, at night with a radio listening to all this music man and just falling in love with this music so i was hip to like rhythm and blues and all you knew there was another world out there you know yeah and when i was about 12 i read um uh this book by louis armstrong um um uh called satchmo yeah which was his first autobiography written, uh, you know, like uh, 50, 60 years ago, um, uh, 60 years ago, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and I read it, um, and it was all about him growing up like in New Orleans and like the red lights, uh, district yeah. and like, um, um, uh, black women chasing black men down the street with a razor slicing it, slicing them, you know, yeah, the butt yeah, open yeah. and stuff. And I was just fascinated by this and I knew there was another world out there and that book just changed my life, Satchmo by Louis Armstrong, man. Uh, so where do you go when you're 18? Um, so, so anyway, so luckily my uh, mother yeah. was, uh, was ambitious, and, and uh, there was this uh, co- association called the Professional Photographers of America, the PPA, PP of A. Uh-huh. And it was just all these corny portrait photographers that had these portrait studios where families or kids would come in and they would take pictures of them and retouch every line out of their face and then hand color them. And oh, the hand colored ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
And um, you see some of them now, even like the old pictures will be posted where it's some girl in high school all dressed up and retouched and colored holding a rifle right right you with know? the rosy faces yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um uh so they uh, so the uh, gerhard bacher uh, gave a talk he he was from milwaukee uh, and he came through town he gave this talk he was a really uh charismatic uh, guy yeah um and he had this school in um milwaukee so um um uh, he Art talked school? him in. To, uh, he, it, it was a photography school, yeah. commercial cornball yeah. uh, photography school in the basement of an art school. Yeah. And the art school tolerated it because it made brought, brought money into the school. Yeah. So they sent me to this school thinking I was going to come back and take over the family business, right? right? And so uh, <laughs> More babies. I, was, I was already like a drug addict and was hip to the music. And the smoking weed and shooting uh, uh, um, every drug because uh, by the time I was 18, you know, I, I had slept for three years. So, so this is um, what, 1960 um, something? This is like um, uh, uh, 58, 59, yeah, 60, yeah. 61. So you right? head out to Milwaukee? And, and, and I headed to Milwaukee uh, to this cornball little photography yeah. school with all these corny little students. Uh, but Gerhard Bacher was, uh, was this hip teacher. Um, um, and uh, so I started hanging out immediately with all the art school students, right? With the sculptors and painters, and uh, my first and my first girlfriend uh, in uh, Milwaukee, my first real girlfriend ever, um, a steady real girlfriend, was um, uh, this girl named Shirley uh, Lewis, uh, who was a painter. Mm -hmm. And then um, change your life. Uh, changed my life, and then I had another girlfriend there at the same time. They didn't uh, know know about each other. Called Chris Hotfit, who's yeah. passed away now with the cancer, unfortunately. Uh, and she was a very good painter. Are you uh, still Are you still slamming speed at this point? Only a couple of times because I, w I was in Milwaukee and I wanted to get away from that whole scene. Right. And uh, then uh, they'd quit making Velo, and uh, all my friends in Tulsa had um, gone on to you know. Uh, be criminals, and um, they already were, but uh, I mean, like we all were, but... Um, um, Dope. Um, uh, they went on to um, the penitentiary, and all the girls became prostitutes. Really? And they quit uh, making uh, Velo yeah. and, and amphetamine available for a few years, and then methadrine hit. Yeah. Dezoxin, which was pure amphetamine on these little yellow pills that you could soak in water and crush them down and pull up a shot of pure methadrine and that's what Andy Warhol and all all, all of his people were taking yeah. uh, back in the 60s, right. 67, 68. So that right, hit the streets there. then? So that was all over the place and it was a pharmaceutical. You had to get a prescription from a doctor, right? Right. So I, so I, so I go to Milwaukee and I hang out with uh, all the painters and sculptors yeah. and then all my friends were painters and sculptors and I room with a friend, a great painter, uh, Ed Jankowski, so I realized yeah. that a camera was something uh, that you could use other than to make these baby pictures because it never <laughs> occurred to me, right? I can use my camera uh, as a tool for my expression, right? As an artist, right? Now, did you, had you seen, like, did the teacher show you, like, the Americans or any of that stuff? Dorothea Lang, did you, are you get, taking any of that in or uh, no? No, no. Um, uh, I learned about Edward Weston. Yeah, Ansel sure. Ansel Adams. Yep. Um, uh, luckily, uh, uh, there was one of the students that, uh, uh, that was hip, uh, and, uh, 
he showed me Walker Evans, right. who, who is my favorite photographer of all time. I can see it. Who influenced Robert Frank and everybody, right? right? Walker and Evans then, was the, he, him and Dorothea did the Dust Bowl shots. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and Walker Evans, Evans did a ton of other stuff. So right. I, so I saw uh, Dorothea Lange's pictures, and I saw all the photographers that worked for the government, right? Because Roosevelt started this program uh, and sent photographers out around America to photograph the Who were those old ones? Was Sul- the Dust Bowl. What was the ones before that? Like Sullivan, was that his name? He did the Indian photographs, the big Indian photographs? Oh, no, his name was uh, uh, not Sullivan. It's a famous name, but I'm blanking. Yeah, me too. Uh, but uh, He worked uh, but, for the but, government, uh, I think, right? Anyway, yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll come. He was yeah. a great photographer. Yeah. He photographed all the Indians. Yeah. He photographed um, uh, Geronimo yeah, and yeah. all those people, right? A great yeah. uh, photographer. Yeah. Uh, and he had a big uh, box camera yeah. on uh, on tripods yeah. and everything like that. And was making like a eight by ten photographs, so four by five or something. Big and, plates, uh, big big plates, and um, um, so you're looking um, at all that stuff. So, so I'm looking at that, and I hadn't seen Robert Frank, but uh, I had seen um, uh, some photographs by Robert Frank imitators, and there yeah. was a ton of them, right? Right. So I saw a couple of those. Um, uh, and I saw uh, W. Eugene Smith, uh, who worked for Life Magazine. Right. And, back, and, and back then, Life Magazine had great photographers working for them and, right. and great uh, stories. And uh, I liked, I liked um, uh, Gene Smith the best. Yeah. Um, uh, and he um, worked for Life, and he would do these assignments, and he would go out and spend a month or two or three photographing uh, uh, something, uh, uh, some people. And he did a famous series called The Country Doctor, and he did one about... A I remember black, seeing uh, that. Yeah, uh, he did one great one about a black nurse in the South. Documentary like style, a mid, yeah. Uh, a, a midwife, a documentary style. But he was this great... Uh, dramatic printer where he printed dark and then he brought up um, the highlights and the faces uh, with uh, ferrous cyanide, which was a bleach. Did you learn how to print brush. in Milwaukee? In Milwaukee, what I did for two years in school was all I did was practice and take pictures. I took more pictures by the thousands uh, than anybody else in the class. Once you got the vision that you yeah. could express yourself. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I, um, um, uh, I mixed all my own chemicals. I yeah. learned how to mix uh, my developer, uh, hypo, um, everything. I, I mixed all my chemicals. I tried out every kind of film known to man. What'd you land on, um, usually? Tri-X. Yeah. Um, uh, Tri-X at 400? Uh, yes, which yeah. was a tri- uh, the fastest film made, yeah. black and white, right. uh, grainy. Yep. And two blocks... From the school, um, uh, the art school, which, which isn't there anymore, uh, Leighton School of Art, it was called, L-A-Y-T-O-N. Uh, and they tore it down, uh, and and it was on, on the drive, and the lake was behind it. This beautiful, beautiful, uh, um, uh, way ahead of its time, contemporary building yeah. that they tore down because they were going to put a highway through it that never happened, right? So, yeah. so it was torn down for nothing, and, yeah. and it was a beautiful building. But two blocks from the building uh, was this uh, movie theater, and they showed art movies. And in Oklahoma, I'd only seen, like, John Wayne movies, and sure. Rock Hudson and Doris Day yeah. and John Ford, right, right. and I'd never seen a foreign film in my life. But they showed all these foreign films, and I yeah. went in one day when I was 18, yeah. 
And then I went back for two years and saw every film they showed, and I saw all of Bergman, all of uh, Godard, all yeah. of Truffaut, right. uh, all of everybody, all the French uh, greats, auteurs. auteurs and, yeah. um, um, uh, and then in 1962, uh, there was a film showing, by, uh, and it said Shadows. Yeah. And I went in, and it was John Cassavetti's first film right. in black and white. And there was, and there'd never been anything like it. Nothing, and never been a film made like it in, in uh, ever in the history of cinema. And I saw it in '62 um, when it came out in this art theater um, um, uh, on a big screen, right, or mm -hmm. on the screen, right. And it and it and it changed my life. Cassavetes changed my life because I walked out and I said, "Shit, man! Someone sees the way I see." Yeah. Somebody else sees the way I see, and it validated the way that I saw. Right. And I went back to Oklahoma, and uh, by did then- it, Did it plant the seed to, that you were going to maybe do film at some point? Cause I you, always wanted to make film. I, yeah. I always wanted to be a storyteller. I always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I always wanted to be a sculptor. I always wanted to be a painter. <laughs> I always wanted to be anything but a photographer, but I had a camera. That was the only tool I had. <laughs> So I so I saved my money and I bought a thirty five millimeter um, um, a camera. Um, um, Konica? Uh, no, 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 not uh, not a reflex camera. Yeah, uh, where the mirrors crash together and right. make a sound. Um, uh, but a uh, but a little Leica SP, yeah. which um, um, which was a rangefinder camera. Yeah, and um, you have um, um, uh, you don't look through the lens. You look through a little uh, um, rectangular, uh, um, uh, a little rectangular on the side, uh, which is um, uh, um, uh, uh, calibrated to see through the lens, but you're not looking through the lens. Right. And so when you uh, uh, click the shutter, it's very silent. Yeah. You know, it yeah. hardly makes any noise at all. And so I went back to Tulsa, and so and and I couldn't afford a Leica. Yeah. Uh, which was also a rangefinder camera and extremely quiet. Just Barely the click of it, yeah, yeah, and uh, started uh, photographing my friends um, in Tulsa, up. which was a secret world, and, yeah. I was, and I was one of the kids. So they all and, knew you; they were comfortable, um, and uh, they were so comfortable that uh, if I didn't have my camera when I walked in, they'd they'd say, "Larry, where's your camera?" Right. We're ready because to go. it was like a part of me, right? Yeah, you know, it was a part of me. Uh, so they knew me with a camera. And if it wasn't a camera hanging from my shoulder from my early days with my mother's Rolleiflex after work, uh, um, uh, it was unusual. I looked naked or something. Where's your camera, Larry? Yeah. And so when I started photographing my friends in this secret world uh, that nobody else could have possibly come in right. and done except someone from the inside, like me, I was just one of the guys, right? Yeah. And um, and there were no plans ever to show these photographs to anybody. There was never any plans to do a book. There was never any plans for anything. I was just practicing photography. Right. And these guys at that time, they were they were shooting up speed. One guy shot himself, I think. Right? Wasn't that since seventy one? Yeah. Right. So and these are and you're just there taking pictures. This is their life. This is the uh, 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 shot himself by accident. I want to make that clear. Is, it didn't wasn't committing suicide. It was uh, this was my life. Right. My life, but you'd gotten a, you'd had a break from it. You've been away for I a had couple a break. years. So, so um, uh, it's my life, and I'm one of the guys, 
and there's nothing special about me. I'm just one of the guys, except I had been away and... Uh, got a head uh, full of art. And <laughs> got a head full of art. Yeah. So as I'm there uh, being myself yeah. and interacting with my friends um, naturally, uh, at the same time, I'm up here in the corner, another me looking down and seeing the scene that I'm in. So I'm so I'm photographing my friends very close. We were in very small rooms and I had a fifty millimeter lens. Yeah. So I'm I'm like a foot from them, two feet from them. It's very small, very tight space. My camera's so quiet that after after a, a couple of minutes, you never heard it anymore, and were they you, didn't hear it. Were you were you shooting up then too? Of course, yeah, <laughs> of course. And so um, uh, everybody's all jacked up. Yeah. So so uh, and this is so early that it wasn't even called speed then. It was amphetamine. Yeah. It became speed uh, in the six later in the sixties, sixty seven. When methadrine uh, started, so um, you were shooting these in sixty three, sixty four. Oh uh, no, sixty two and sixty three. That's when Tulsa was shot. Nineteen sixty three, sixty three. So that was n- that was, that then, world was nowhere. No one, nowhere, knew about it. no one knew about it, right? And and so then, um, uh, uh, I went away, and um, where'd uh, you go? Yeah, uh, to New York, right? And you met New York that, City with that uh, dude, uh, and and I uh, got a job. Uh, I was such a great uh, darkroom and a great printer yeah. and knew everything backwards and forward uh, ke- uh, about chemistry and yeah. photography and all this stuff because all I did for two years was, was work. Yeah. Was work. And uh, I've gone through, uh, gone to uh, a few schools. I'm, I'm not a good teacher, but um, I've gone uh, to a number of schools through the years um, uh, as a guest speaker. Right. And I see these kids there uh, going to like four years of photography school in college, yeah, and uh, uh, on their daddy's dime, sure, right? Sure, and just fucking around, and you know, and um, and and I and I'd tell them, I would say, look, man, you can look at photography in six months. You don't need to be to be in this school. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your parents' money. If you want to really want to be a photographer, quit school and go out and just make. Photographs. And there's no reason for them to know about chemicals anymore. There's no reason for them to know about anything except, uh, you <laughs> know, you know, um, make the photographs uh, uh, from your own personal vision. Right. And so, obviously, I wasn't invited back to very many schools to talk, <laughs> right? So, and, uh, so um, when you got to New York, you got a gig so in a lab? I, uh, so, when I got to New York, I got a job with a, um, a big commercial photographer who did, uh, who, uh, who worked with this designer, famous uh, uh, a designer George Lois yeah and uh, Carl Fisher did all the covers for Esquire back right, then right Barbara Streisand and John Updike and were you uh, going on the shoots uh, everybody well the shoots were in the studio and I was there right and I remember um, John you were Hutt, mostly printing or what I, w- I was the dark room right you were it I was uh, I was this twenty uh, <laughs> um, year old kid who was the dark room right. I, and I knew more than anybody else right and I used to go in the dark room. And a car would want to print, right? And yeah. um, and and I would print it uh, 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 the way that I wanted to print it, a better way, and make yeah. these beautiful prints. And, and 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 he would freak out and say, "That's not the way I ask you to do it." And I said, "No, but it's better, man. You know, yeah. trust me. I know what I'm doing." <laughs> and so um, he would go talk to the to the manager that hired yeah. me, um, uh, Dwayne Dalrymple, right. Dal. Yeah. And. Um, um, 
but they wouldn't fire me. They didn't fire me because I was just too good a printer, man. Yeah. And so after a year, um, uh, my mother called me, um, um, uh, and I never in my life called my mother mommy. Yeah. You know, never ever in my life called her mommy. And um, I remember the phone rang. It was for me, and Carl was there, and Dow was there, and some other a studio assistant was there. Um, uh, and she told me I'd been drafted. You know, um, that they, they'd gotten the letters see, because this is like sixty uh, um, uh, four, and there was no Vietnam, there was no war. Um, um, uh, President Johnson uh, hadn't sent any tr- the first fifty thousand troops right. to Vietnam uh, over the so-called uh, uh, Gulf of Tong- uh, Tonkin, Tonkin uh, yeah. incident, so-called incident, yeah. right? Right. Um, uh, so. Um, uh, I was drafted, and nobody uh, tried to get out of the draft, you know. And the only way you, you could get out of the draft, and a couple of people, I was in New York, did it uh, um, by going and wearing a dress. Yeah. You know, otherwise there was no way to get out. You were drafted. No matter right. what you told them, you were drafted unless you went uh, wearing a dress and full makeup and everything like that. And a couple, and, 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 and since it was New York City, there were a couple of... Um, of um, of gay guys that did this, right? Well, they put on a dress and lipstick and makeup and earrings and went to the draft, right? Which was so far out in '64, man. I mean, and 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 the army just immediately said, "Go home," you know, right. to them. Were you? But because there wasn't a war outside of the lack of choice, were you frightened or what? No, I was just part of life. Everybody went to the army for two years. I was drafted. So if, where'd you go? Where'd if you? if you joined, it was three years. But fuck, I didn't join, man. Yeah. I was drafted for two years, like everybody else. Um, I went to um, uh, um, uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, for basic, uh, terrible hot uh, hellhole, and um, halfway through basic training, uh, the drill sergeant walked in one morning and said, uh, are you guys ready to go kill the commies in Vietnam? And we said, what's Vietnam? Because that that day, President Johnson had sent the first 50,000 troops over to Vietnam, and we didn't know what Vietnam was. And so uh, I spent my first year in the Army uh, in the South. I was in Fort Eustis, Virginia. Uh, and then I was in uh, Virginia Beach. Yeah. Uh, um, and um, I was the most fucked up soldier. I was always getting busted, and I was always like a private E1. Busted um, with what? Speed? Uh, uh, busted for whatever you can imagine, you know, talking back to the sergeants, oh, right. being, a, you know, uh, every rule I could break, I broke, right? Yeah. I got cart marshal once. For and, what? Uh, uh, I went AWOL. Yeah. Because um, I'd, uh, I'd gotten leave uh, to go visit, uh, and I went to visit my girlfriend in New York, uh, and I just stayed, you know, for a couple extra weeks. Um, <laughs> and then I went back, and they threw me in, 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 in the brig, and then... Uh, it wasn't like a real court martial. It was just it was called a summary court martial. I mean, so I had to go see the the head of the unit, the major um, uh, who sent me to the captain, who had gone to Cornell. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, he said to me, you, uh, um, "You think you're pretty smart, don't you?" You know. He said, "I graduated from Cornell," and I laughed at him. And so uh, he busted me down to private E one. And uh, I took my pay for six months, so I didn't get my $90 check a month, whatever it was. I had no money. And uh, put me on, like, a kitchen detail, so I had to peel potatoes and scrub pots for a few months. And then he transferred me out of of the unit 
to um, I was in uh, a unit uh, uh, where I could have been a photographer and right. stuff. Uh, but but he transferred me out of that unit. It wasn't anything to do with me uh, to a transportation unit, and the transportation unit. Um, was a unit where they offloaded trucks and ships and stuff, and it was 90% black, uh, and it was all like hard labor, and we were out working on the railroad in, uh, in uh, Virginia and uh, with, uh, you know, with pickaxes and Almost stuff. Almost like prison. Yeah, and, um, uh, but I was smart, and, um, and the one thing I realized in basic training uh, was uh, that, that I'd never known before uh, then in basic training of all these guys in basic training that I was smarter than all of them because most of them you know were 18 and straight out of the uh, out of out of out of their home and yeah. they were like mama's boys they yeah. didn't know anything you know and they were like you know didn't know nothing right so uh, by chance uh, the uh, the, um, the company clerk had um, uh, mustered out of the army his time was up right and so they needed needed like like a company clerk, and um, um, uh, when I got out of basic, I had volunteered, which you never volunteered. The rule is never volunteered. But there was a typing class, uh, and and the drill sergeant. We were in formation at attention. The drill sergeant came out and said, "I need a volunteer for typing class." Yeah. And I raised my hand. I said, "Me, me, me." So he said, "Okay." So uh, I, I got to go to typing class every afternoon for six weeks or something, and I learned how to be a great typist. I was yeah. a typewriter, man. I could speed type. I yeah. could do like 120 words a minute or something. That was really good. So even though I was a private E1 uh, in this transportation unit, um, uh, they needed a company clerk, and since I should type, could type so well, uh, they made me company clerk. So now I'm in the captain's <laughs> office, right? right? The, the company guy. clerk, and I'm the captain's uh, man, right? Right. And so everything that comes in, the orders and all the information and all the correspondence, I'm typing in and being the company clerk. And Not was, the Cornell guy, the captain. And I was, no, no, no. It's a different different, yeah. different guy. As, as a matter of fact, he wasn't a captain in the second year. He was a major. Yeah. And, um, and I got along with him, but... Um, uh, I I didn't get haircuts and I was uh, shaggy and um, and my uniform uh, uh, was supposed to be like you know pressed and yeah. starched and all that. I would just take my uniform and throw it in the laundry and into the dryer and put it on all wrinkled <laughs> and go in the captain's uh, uh, office. I mean the major's office. Yeah. And I would and I was the company clerk <laughs> and typing and I was so good that they couldn't uh, uh, really get rid of me because there was nobody else qualified. Um, but the first chance he got, uh, I'd been in the South for one year, um, uh, he sent me to Vietnam. He signed orders to send me to Vietnam. So my second year in the Army, I spent in Vietnam. Uh, so I was in Vietnam all of 1966. So I was in the South all of 65 and in Vietnam all of 1966. So I was in Vietnam early, and uh, I mustered out... Um, uh, in Oakland, California, um, uh, December uh, of uh, 1966, and, what, what? and uh, this is two years before the first Tet Offensive. So you didn't see you, you weren't. I didn't. I didn't see any any real action. I got shot at a few times because we we were in a transportation unit. And right. We, we used to take the ammo up to the soldiers in the jungle. Yeah. And back then. If you saw like uh, Oliver Stone's first film, yeah. uh, Platoon, yeah. 
They used to take the soldiers up into the jungle, way up north in uh, northern Vietnam, and drop them in the jungle, and they would fight. And um, uh, I was stationed in Tuiwa, which later became like a fighting place too, but, uh, but it was fairly safe when I was there because all the fighting was done up in the jungle. Um, uh, and so the war hadn't and, expanded uh, yet. It, it, it hadn't expanded yet. So, but I would see these truckloads of soldiers coming back from the jungle. Yeah, you know, like a truck, open truck with uh, both sides, the soldiers sitting there, like thirty soldiers. Yeah, and every one of them was like staring blankly ahead, man. Yeah, I'd never seen anything like. I'll never forget the image of these soldiers coming back, man, from the jungle, fighting in the jungle. Right? No camera, though, huh? You know, um, uh, no, no, no. I, I, I had a camera, but I took very few pictures when I was when I was in the army. A few, a few good ones. Uh, but um, um, when I was in Vietnam, what I did was uh, um, I smoked uh, weed and drank warm beer every evening. Um, and uh, as I say, the unit was ninety percent black. Yeah. And um, uh, 89.9% of them had never smoked pot in their life. Huh. Nobody smoked pot. Yeah. And I would, I would like go into the small village um, uh, in, um, uh, outside of Tuiwa uh, and cop like a, a, a small pillowcase full of the most potent marijuana you've ever smoked in your life back then yeah. for like 10 bucks, right? Yeah, yeah right. And, I, and I'd bring it back and I turned on um, all, all, <laughs> all my friends in this unit. Life changing. So, yeah, yeah. So like, uh, so like one year later, uh, when I mustered out, 99% of the squad smoked weed, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and we would like sit on the sand dune at night uh, late, uh, drinking warm beer, really like hot, warm, hot, warm, warm beer and smoking pot, getting so fucked up that one night I was walking back to my tent um, and I passed out face first in the sand and I woke up, uh, you know, like five o'clock in the morning, uh, still passed out face first in the sand with sand up my nose, all in my eyes, all in my mouth and didn't know who I was and then I, I woke up enough to know who I was and I went and tried to wash the sand out of my eyes and nose and mouth. Yeah. And I uh, went into my tent and slept another hour. Uh, but that's how strong the shit was, man. So and, uh, there was no dope around yet? There was no dope. I went into the village uh, and found uh, found an opium den. Right. And I went into the opium den, and um, the, ch uh, the chief of police of this village came in and said hello and, and watched me. And uh, the opium uh, uh, den guy was like straight out of Gunga Den, right? right. Um, 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 this little skinny Vietnamese guy, skinny uh, skin and bones, wearing like a loincloth. And uh, on the floor was this straw mat and a wooden pillow. And it was a piece of wood with like a, a curve hollowed out that was so smooth because it would probably been there for a hundred years and a, a thousand heads had laid on it. Right. And, and actually a piece of wood was smooth and comfortable because so many people had laid on their side on it smoking opium, right? So so um, he had the, the big uh, uh, hookah there and I took about three hits of opium and he said, that's enough, no more. And uh, the chief of police is watching me and laughing, and um, and me being like uh, you know an old doper, and, uh, you know, and like a um, 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 you know a fucking hog. I said, no, 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 I want more. So yeah. I took a couple more hits against this guy, and this guy's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> and so I get back to my unit, high as a kite, 
And then I was sick as a dog for three days, man, throwing up and dying for three days because I OD'd on it. It yeah. was that strong, and I should have stopped it two or three hits, but then I took five or six, you know, and not realizing what I was doing because I'd never smoked opium before. And, uh, man, I was so sick for three days. I'll never forget it. I've so, never been that sick in my life. But except, that wasn't your... That wasn't except your... kicking heroin many years later. <laughs> I was that sick, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but that was my Vietnam experience. And uh, so I came back, and I was lucky because uh, because we, we would get shot at as we floated up the river right. uh, up north to, uh, to bring them the ammo. Um, uh, but two years later, after the Tet Offensive, all that area was overrun by Viet Cong, and people were getting killed. And then uh, the government, there was no heroin in Vietnam when I was there. I guarantee you, if there was, I would have found it. Yeah. You know, there was opium dens uh, in, in the villages and weed that was just fantastic. But then after I left, um, the government, the government of Vietnam, uh, started bringing in heroin and sending it to to the American troops uh, because they had a captive audience, right? Sure. And then after that, thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers came back to uh, mustered out of um, of the army from Vietnam with incredibly uh, high um, um, dope habits, heroin habits, right? Yeah. And so they came back to America and and started shooting heroin uh, in America. And then had a lot of trouble, uh, you know, kicking it. But that was all uh, the government um, um, of Vietnam um, uh, getting heroin and and sending it into the troops, right? You know, and then and then they and sh- making millions of dollars, and, right? Right, and they strung out the, they the whole strung country. out the whole fucking uh, country, <laughs> man, and. Uh, so it was so corrupt, man. So corrupt back then, and uh, so when you get back, do you go back to New York then? When I got it, I mustered out in. Uh, December 67 in, in San Francisco, luckily. And uh, the next day, I took my first hit of acid with some friends. And, uh, um, it was and, a whole uh, different world then now. So you It was do- a whole different world, right? And, yeah. and I'm in Vietnam reading Life magazine right. and seeing the hippie movement starting with kids with long hair, and I couldn't wait to get out and get back, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like a Dylan's record, um, uh, Everybody Must Get Stoned was playing on the radio in Vietnam, you yeah. know. You know, and uh, because, you know, we got a radio and stuff. Yeah, sure. And I couldn't wait to get back. So I got back and immediately started growing my hair and growing a mustache and uh, uh, doing acid and smoking weed and um, uh, doing every drug I could do. Um, when did your relationship uh, with the heroin start? Uh, the, you know, um, in the, and uh, I was in uh, Frisco for a few months, San Francisco. Yeah. Excuse me, San Francisco. They hate. I know they hate they it. They hate it when yeah. you call it Frisco. So I was in San Francisco for a few months, and then I went back to New York, and uh, I was doing uh, all the drugs, uh, uh, peyote and everything, and LSD. And back then, for just about five months at the max, six months at the very max, um, uh, they had THC uh, legally uh, in pill form. Yeah. Uh, that was legal. Yeah. That was like a prescription uh, drug, right? Right. And for about six months, it was legal. And you could get like pure THC pills yeah. uh, and take them. And man, it was the greatest, most pleasant high in the whole world. Um, uh, just so much fun. You were so happy and laughing and just uh, uh, a high that I've never had again. It was that great and pleasant. And um, uh, and then the government snapped, and they passed a law against yeah. it. Yeah, 
But uh, how was the acid? Uh, the acid, you know, the acid never really agreed to, with me so much. I I had two or three trips that 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 were great, and I saw God and yeah. everything, you know. And um, <laughs> and then he went uh, away. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I took two. Yeah. I had two really bad trips in a row. Yeah, horribly bad acid trips. Awful, awful, yeah. awful, man. And. Um, uh, so I never took acid again. Now, when, so when do you, when how does Tulsa happen as a book? You back from Vietnam? I'm back from Vietnam, and it's '68, uh, and I go back to Tulsa. Most everybody was in jail, and uh, then I went back in '68, and um, uh, I rented a little uh, 16 millimeter uh, movie camera. Yeah, filmed my friends. Billy Billy Mann was like back in town, whose daddy died in 1970. Who's one of the two two uh, main characters in the book. Uh, it starts when we're kids, and it ends with these young kids, the next generation, 15, 16-year-old yeah. kids. Uh, so it's like a circle. I was, I was saying this is a circle. It just goes on and on, and it's still going on. If you go back to Tulsa now, there's more methadrine in Tulsa than there ever was in my whole life. And tar. And and uh, the whole um, uh, uh, country uh, uh, does methadrine now, and they make it. How did you, like, you know, we got through Vietnam, we got through the photos, and we talked a bit about the opening, but what was your deliverance into the world of fine art? I mean, how did Tulsa get made into a book? How did that become, uh, you know, this notorious and important documentary photography? Well, what, what happened was... Uh, Back then, all, all the photographers wanted to have a book of their work. Right. You know, um, uh, and there were only a few uh, places that would publish uh, 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 your book, and it was very, very hard to get your book published. And uh, especially if you wanted your book to be like you wanted your book to be, because they would want an editor to edit your book. And you can imagine that if an editor had touched Tulsa, what would have happened, right? Because I, I, I got naked uh, and I got dicks and I got everything uh, 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 that was happening in uh, the book. Guns, drugs, um, and dicks. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so my friend Ralph Gibson, uh, who I met, uh, was a, a great photographer, a very well-known photographer, a real photographer. I'm not a real photographer. He's a real photographer. What does that mean? A real photographer loves photography and photographs every day of their life. And that's what they do. Right. And, and uh, uh, the real photographers are Ralph Gibson, Lee Friedlander, Gary Winogrand, was, uh, who passed away, was a real photographer. Those are the real photographers. Uh, what do you consider yourself? An artist. Okay. And I just had a camera as a tool. Right. Uh, because I always wanted to be anything but a photographer. Um, um, uh, so, so, and I always wanted to make films, and I always wanted to be a sculptor or a painter. So in 68, you could not get your book published. Right. Uh, so, uh, so Ralph had a very personal book that he wanted published that he laid out completely himself uh, called The Somnambulist. Yeah. And he, and he couldn't get a publisher. And finally, Aperture, uh, Peter um, um, uh, Bunnell from uh, Boonwell, uh, uh, Peter Bunnell, uh, who, who, uh, who ran Aperture for 30 years, yeah. agreed to publish a Ralph's book, yeah. but wanted to come over to Ralph's every Wednesday night and edit it with him. And, 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 and Ralph said, no way, right? It's a very personal book. And so Ralph, being very smart and a very intelligent guy, uh, uh, one of the smartest men that, I, that, uh, that I've ever met, just natural, you know, high IQ, yeah. uh, 
um, uh, decided to self-publish his book, which had never been done. And so he actually printed up these stocks. He just went to his uh, his uh, typewriter and printed up these stocks, yeah. had them printed, and went around to friends and rich people that, uh, that he met and actually sold them enough stocks for his book uh, and raised $3,000 and flew out to California because then there were all these printing companies um, uh, that printed for the aerospace industry and stuff. Yeah. And um, uh, that had stopped, so uh, so they were hungry for business. So you could get a book published for $3,000 and get 3,000 copies. And in California, there was a 10% law where the printer could uh, be 10% over or 10% under. So, of course, you got 3,000 copies, and, of course, you got exactly 2,700 copies. Right. They right. were always just accidentally 10% under, which right. was legal. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so Ralph printed the Sun Amulets and got 2,700 copies and self-published it and just put the, and, and said, I got a, a think of a, of a press. So he put Lustrum Press on it. And then so, the Sun Ralph Gibson in the spine. And on the cover, it just says, uh, I don't think it has, it doesn't say anything on the cover, just a photograph. Yeah. On the side, it says, uh, the Somnambulist. Yeah. So he was my buddy, so I wanted to print Tulsa. And so um, I laid out the book, completely laid out the book from 62 to 68. Right. And uh, then went back to Tulsa with my dummy and uh, to finish the book knowing exactly what was missing from the scene, knowing exactly what photographs I needed that I didn't have that of things that were happening. Right? Yeah. And I didn't know when they would happen, where they would happen, or how they would happen, but I knew I was going to be there when they happened. So I went back to, 70, uh, so I went back to Tulsa in 71, and, and I started firing up um, uh, methadrine, um, the good stuff, uh, good stuff. The Zoxin, man, yeah. pure f- pure pharmaceutical methadone on a pill, little plastic pill. You yeah. would crush up, yeah. and then drop uh, the um, uh, with a put put it in a half an eye drop of water, and drop the methadone and and, and and fix right. Yeah, and uh, uh, so I went back and just jumped back into my, the life, and made photographs. Um, seventy one in seventy one, and finished the book. And the second half of the book. It's all in 71, and all those photographs were made within a three or four month period because I knew what was missing, and I knew the scene. And, and once I had all the photographs from the uh, 71, I went back to uh, New York, and I printed um, uh, the 71 photographs in the dark room, uh, in Ralph's dark room, which happened uh, to be, Ralph had met uh, Robert Frank, and Robert Frank had given uh, Ralph his old um, uh, enlarger. It was like an Omega D2. Get out of here. This old enlarger. So uh, the Somnambulists in Tulsa were printed, or uh, the, uh, the 71 pictures from Tulsa uh, were printed on um, uh, uh, Robert Frank's old uh, Omega D2 enlarger in Ralph Gibson's dark room. So that might have been the enlarger he used to make the Americans? Possibly, I guess Be- so, probably. Because, you know, because yeah. I was thinking about it, and I never thought about it until today, yeah. that Tulsa, on some level, you know, though they're, you know, maybe, you know, over, over a decade apart, mm-hmm. is is the the next wave of the Americans. Mm-hmm. In some weird way, there's a continuity to it. Well, uh, the the Americans was the late 50s, and Tulsa was 71. Right. So uh, there was more than a decade, but yeah. Do you but, know what I'm uh, saying, but, though? Uh, yeah. 
So uh, the, the American, other America, the the Americans changed photography forever. Yeah, yeah. and Tulsa changed photography yeah. forever. That's right. Uh, um, I printed the uh, the book. I lay out the book exactly as you. Uh, uh, as you see it today. And you have that uh, great quote in it. Once the needle goes in, it never comes out. Yeah. And that was from Billy Mann. And he said that. Billy Mann said that to me uh, in 68. And um, and I never forgot it. So um, uh, I think it's under his photograph. So I print the pictures. Ralph comes back from Europe. Uh, lets me crash on his couch for another yeah. month. Uh, one night, Danny Seymour comes over. Because Danny Seymour has this book, uh, A Loud Song, which was his like personal diary that he made and he wanted it published. And so he came over to ask uh, uh, Ralph to publish it for him, right? To go out to California and publish it for him for right. like 3,000 bucks. The way he did uh, uh, his uh, book. The, the, the uh, Sonambulist. And uh, Ralph had a second book that he wanted to publish called Days at Sea. Um, uh, and also a photographer named Neil Slavin had a book called Portugal that he wanted uh, to publish, um, uh, self-publish himself. Yeah. Ralph agreed to do that and put Lust and Press on it. And he agreed to do Danny's book and put Lust and Press on it. And when Danny came over, I'd never met Danny in my life, and he walked up to me and said, um, uh, Hi, Larry, I'm Danny. Um, uh, uh, Robert told me uh, that you have these photographs uh, that should be published, and, and I want to pay to publish the book. Just like that. Yeah. And so uh, Ralph and Danny and I flew out to California together, and um, uh, Danny was shooting heroin, uh, and I was doing cocaine uh, like crazy. And, um, uh, and so Ralph and Danny and I uh, went to, um, uh, to the printers, and we printed the Loud Song, Tulsa, and Neil Simon's Portugal. And so we printed all those three books together. Yeah. And then we came back, from, and, and I got exactly 2,700 copies, of right. course. We paid for 3,000 for the 10% law. And Danny got 2,700 copies of The Loud Song, and Neil, Neil Slavin got 2,700 copies of Portugal. Yeah. And so um, the first edition is a paperback, and there's only 2,700 copies, and that's why now you go on eBay and you see it sells for thousands of dollars sometime, you know, a good cherry copy. And I have, I actually have two copies. I have one cherry copy, and then I have one copy still in the shrink wrap. Yeah. It was published in 71, Ralph Gibson, Lustin Press. So all yeah. of a sudden, this there wasn't a Lustin Press. All of a sudden, there's a Lustin Press with four photography books out there on the shelves, right? Yeah. And Tulsa was an immediate um, um, sensation, man. I mean, uh, the reviews were um, uh, Alan Coleman in, in uh, uh, The Village Voice, a great photography critic uh, who worked for the New York Times after The Village Voice. Um, this book, Larry Clark's Tulsa, comes out of nowhere, you know. It's, uh, too, it's too good to be believed. Yeah. I mean, that was the start of the review, you know. So, so it was like this rave review. And the New York Times gave it a rave review, wow. yeah. and everybody gave it a rave review, uh, and it sold out uh, within months, right? What about Teenage Lust? When did that first come out? So Teenage Lust was published, uh, uh, I self-published that myself in, uh, in 83 or 84. Uh, when were the images taken? The images were taken uh, through my whole life. It was kind of a scrapbook uh, uh, style book. 
uh, of of uh, images of me uh, uh, from a little kid uh, all the way through my life. And um, I went back to Tulsa in 72 and discontinued on photographing uh, the kids uh, at the end of Tulsa and my friends who were still alive. Uh, and I got a girlfriend who was a prostitute and we went around and she'd go in and uh, fuck doctors or give them a blowjob and get scripts uh, for, for, uh, for um, Zoxin and for uh, an opiate for herself because she was a heroin addict. And we drove around the whole country for a couple of years. And um, uh, um, uh, so I just went back into life and, and really just lived the outlaw life. And, uh, um, and some of the stuff from Times Square, those images were pretty great. And, and, um, and then I went to the penitentiary because I was in a poker game with, uh, uh, with some guys that I didn't know well. Yeah. And, um, um, and I won and they wouldn't pay me. And one guy pulled out a gun. And so I left with my girlfriend, um, and I went to the car, and I got a gun, and I came back, and I went into the house. I shot the guy, and I shot him in the arm uh, on purpose. Yeah. I think on purpose. I don't know if I just missed or I, th- I think on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I might have just missed. I think I just shot at him. And, um, uh, and, then, and then left. And um, about a week later, I got busted, uh, and the cops stopped me and busted me for shooting this guy. And um, my mindset was, what? You know, the guy snitched on me, you know? Why would he tell me? Why would he snitch on me, you know? Because uh, 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 for me and, and, and my friends and my mindset, yeah. was it was the old West. It was like Billy the Kid and Jesse yeah. James, you know? You know, someone that pulls a gun on you, you, you get a gun and shoot him, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I was actually shocked that he had snitched me, so I had to go to court. And uh, I got like um, um, four or five years. I got four years, I think, on one charge and a year on another charge. Um, And I did 19 months and somehow made parole because uh, my mother's brother and uncle used to uh, be a newspaper writer, a a, a sports writer for the... A uh, newspaper in yeah. uh, in, um, in uh, Oklahoma City, I think, and uh, he knew everybody and knew a lot of politicians, and uh, so uh, um, my mother um, employed him, and he pulled a few strings, and uh, so I got to go to, to the parole board and get parole, but they wouldn't parole me to Oklahoma; they would only parole me to New York. So I paroled out in '78. Uh, Was it where were you? Where were you in the pen? In Oklahoma, in McAllister. Bad one? State, state, pre- oh, really? state penitentiary. Hard time. Uh, hard times. And, uh, you know, uh, maximum security prison. And uh, How'd you hold up in there? Uh, I was fine, you know, because I had friends in there, you know. Yeah. And, uh, so I was fine. I had people watching my back. And I'm, and I'm smart enough to know, you know, how to act in the penitentiary, you know. Yeah. And, uh, which is, I could talk about that for half an hour, how to act. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, so I... What's, uh, the, what's the main thing you need to know? Uh, you need to know uh, that you never ask anybody what they're in for. Yeah. Um, and you never make uh, jokes um, uh, uh, with people that you don't know. Yeah. And you mind your own business, and you don't talk a lot, and you never ask people like personal questions, especially what they're in for. Because if you ask somebody what they're in for, and they say, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, I murdered my family, you know, my yeah. whole family, my brother, my sister, my mother, my father, and my baby, uh, 
uh, brother, uh, you know, because you never know what kind of answer you're going to get, you know. Right. So if, if uh, you're in with, uh, in, and your cellmate is someone uh, like that, and you ask them what they're in for, man, I mean, you don't want to know that. Yeah. You know, so you never ask anybody what, what they're in for. So number one rule. And, um, and, and you never joke around, and you're quiet, and you stay straight ahead, and, um, uh, uh, and that's it because it's the penitentiary, man. And there's some really bad people in there. But but I'll tell you one thing about the penitentiary: ninety percent of people are in the penitentiary, you know, for you know, uh, you know, for crimes. Yeah. But ninety percent um, uh, are all uh, drug and alcoholics, um, uh, uh, all drug addicts uh, and alcoholics, and and their crimes uh, come from that, from right. them being drug addicts and alcoholics. Right. Then there's ten percent of people who are in the penitentiary that really need to be in the penitentiary. And there's three or 4% of people in the penitentiary that need to be executed immediately. Right. They need to be taken out and shot in the head. Yeah, yeah. Because they're just that kind of people. Yeah. They just, uh, they just um, uh, um, no rehabilitation. are born that way. Yeah. No, they can't be, they, they don't have that gene. I, I think scientists have, have proven that people like that who don't have a conscience or feel any guilt yeah, are uh, missing a certain gene, a right. B something, yeah. a gene, um, and I, I, and and I, uh, one of my best friends, Jack Johnson, was like that, and he's dead now he OD'd, uh, and he's in teenage lust um, at the beginning, and there's articles about him and his life and his crimes. So teenage lust is really you at your most out of control in some yeah, way. Yeah, 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 and I'm just uh, in the life, photographing the yeah. life. And um, uh, and my girlfriend's a prostitute and a yeah. drug addict, and uh, my best friend Jack Johnson uh, is a heroin addict and um, um, and a crook. So you get and, paroled um, to New York? Yeah, so I get paroled to New York, and like Jack had no, was the most charming guy in the world. You'd love Jack. Yeah, but uh, Jack didn't have a, a this guilt thing. He didn't. He, he had no guilt feelings, no conscience. He could. Uh, he could be like you and me talking, and you turn your back, and he may take your watch and put it in his pocket, and never give it a second thought. It was just a natural thing for him. He didn't feel guilt. Yeah, but he was the most charming guy in the world. And by the way, uh, homicide detectives are charming, charming, the most charming people I've ever met, because they have to be charming uh, for people to tell them stuff, right? So yeah. they're charming, yeah. right? So anyway, so. Um, where are we now? We're now at the the publication of Teenage Lust. Um, you self-published that? I self-published it, uh, and um, uh, I wanted to make film, and I wanted to stop being a drug addict, so I cleaned up my act. I was um, uh, still doing drugs like crazy and drinking like an alcoholic uh, when I was on parole. As a matter of fact, once I saw my parole officer, uh, and he wasn't there that day, so it was another guy. Um, um, there to talk to me because I had to go in once every couple of weeks or once a month or something, and uh, and and I went in and, and I was drunk and and I passed out in the chair, talking to the parole officer, the substitute parole officer. Yeah, and and I woke up handcuffed to the chair, and I woke up and uh, the guy said, "What the fuck, man? You know what? What's what's the matter with you, Larry?" And, and and I said, God, I'm 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 sorry, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm you know, I, I'll I'll stop it, you know, please, please, please. And he and he and he unhandcuffed me and let me go. 
And then the next time I went, I saw my parole officer, my regular parole officer, and I was always perfectly straight, you know, and yeah. uh, you know made sure that I wasn't anywhere high and there were no drugs in my system. So I lived on that parole, and the parole office, uh, office was on 40th Street between, I think, uh, uh, 8th and 9th Avenue, and I saw something I'd never seen before. Yeah, I was completely in shock. I saw all these young um, uh, people. There were the girl prostitutes there that everybody knew about, right? Yeah. There were people selling drugs that everybody knew about. But there were all these young teenage Puerto Rican boys um, um, uh, with tight pants, uh, you know, uh, yeah. and holding their dicks, you know, and giving yeah. you these come on looks uh, to, uh, to every man that walked down the street, right? And uh, so I walked up to one of them and I said, what's going on, man, you know? And he explained to me what was going on. He was a hustler. Yeah. And uh, he'd, he'd come from Puerto Rico, um, from his family there to like live with the relatives in New York. Yeah. And uh, they had, and his relatives had like 10 kids too. So after a couple of weeks, he, he, he was thrown out of that house, had to leave. So he was like 16, 15 years old in New York City on his own. So the only way that he could make money or find out how to make money was to go to 42nd Street and hustle, right? And um, um, hustle, hu- hustle these like, uh, you know, um, um, all men, middle-aged men, yeah. I don't know, everybody, right? Uh, um, uh, and let them suck his dick or, um, yeah. and they give money or, or you know, uh, uh, I guess suck their dick or whatever they did, yeah. man, you know? Um, um, and he found that, sort and, of, and 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 I just found that fascinating because I never heard of it before. Yeah. I never, it never had occurred to me that this stuff happened. So I started photographing these kids, um, um, and made friends with them. And how I made friends with them was um, I would photograph them on the street, you know, yeah, uh, as they were just standing there, uh, hustling, and then I would go home and. Um, um, and uh, I had a dark room in my kitchen then, so I could print at nighttime. And I had a blackout curtain there. Yeah. And, um, and, and I would make these beautiful, I was a great printer, I'd make these beautiful 11 by 14 prints uh, and then take them back to the kids the next day and give them to them. Yeah. And they would be so impressed. They would go, wow, man, thanks, Larry, because it's a great photograph of them. Right. You know, and they never seen anything like that before. Yeah, yeah. These beautiful 11 by 14 prints, and they would say, gee, thanks, Larry. So I made great friends with them. Yeah. And um, my best story about that is I gave this, this kid this uh, incredible print. There was only two of them, one for myself and one for him. So there was only two of a kind. And, um, uh, and he took the print, and he said, Geez, thanks, Larry. And he folded it in fours and put it in his back pocket. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest thing ever. And those are the pictures that are in Teenage Lust. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, let's and, talk about it. Because I think that Bully is a little masterpiece. Thank you very much. I love that movie. Thank you. I do, too. I think it's one of my best ones. And you're in it. You're kind of looming in it a bit. And um, Brad Renfro. Uh, I, I play a tiny part uh, where I have one line as a kid's father because the actor didn't show up. We had no actor to play it, so I was forced him to do it. Now, when you approach that, because now that you mentioned early on in this conversation that Cassavetes blew your mind, that there mm-hmm. is a, an element to the naturalism of how you approach film that's mm-hmm. a lot like his, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah. Now, in that movie, you know, I, I see it as sort of a continuation of, of you know, some of the, the the kind of emotional and sexual elements of probably teenage lust and something you've mm-hmm. always done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what you allowed those the, the actors to do... Uh, you know, it, it was sort of like to me, 
encapsulated your whole sort of what do i want to use the word oeuvre but you know sure it, yeah you know that it, it was all larry clark yeah it all been leading to bully for me right do you think that's true very true and you know in terms of how that movie was received i don't remember how it was received but for me the the rawness of 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 sexuality and violence in that movie mm-hmm. was something that you know it felt like you were going for it felt like some somewhat of the core of your artistic vision mm-hmm. but it couldn't be realized completely in the photographs mm-hmm, exactly right well, so, i always wanted to be a filmmaker right and film for me was was uh, i had done everything that i could do with photography right. i was finished with photography i'd done everything for myself that i could do and and so i wanted to make a film yeah and so and uh, and, and i wanted to make a film my whole life but i was too fucked up to do it no one's going to give me millions of dollars to do it yeah. so i cleaned myself up and luckily fell fell in love after after i cleaned up um with this wonderful um uh woman um, uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, who lived, who had come to New York uh, after college. She your wife? My wife. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we ended up getting married, having two children. Um, and we were together about 13 years um, and then separated, um, my fault. Uh, separated, um, my fault because I started drinking again. And um, um, uh, my fault. Uh, but anyway, we separated after about 13 years. But, uh, but I have the most wonderful children. You, you just met Matt, my son. Yeah. Uh, who has a punk rock band in Seattle called Wild Mohicans. You yeah. You tattoo here? Wild Mohicans. And my daughter has a, um, uh, my granddaughter now, it's a nine months old, wonderful, yeah. beautiful uh, daughter, a smart kid. Um, who married her, her high school sweetheart? Oh. Uh, and uh, so wonderful. Um, so I always wanted to make films. So I cleaned up, and then I was lucky enough to meet this woman, and fall in love, and we got married, and I stayed clean for years. Um, and then I um, I decided it was time to make a film, and I wanted to make a film not about myself because all my work had been autobiographical, and I wanted to make a film about a world I didn't know. Yeah. So I wanted to make a world about contemporary um, uh, teenagers um, that um, uh, that I knew nothing about, and so I picked skateboarders because visually they were the most exciting. Right? Yeah. As a visual artist, it was very exciting to watch skateboarders. So I infiltrated. Uh, the skateboard world, and to do that, I had to learn how to skateboard at 50 years old, and no yeah. one, no one does that. Or 47, 48 years old, right. I started skateboarding, and because if you're going to photograph skateboarders, you can't run after them. You got to skate. Yeah, right. So I learned how to skate fast enough in bomb hills and everything with my Leica. Yeah. And so uh, I skated uh, in California and then back in New York uh, with skaters and met skaters for three or four years and got the idea for kids yeah. from real life events right. uh, that happened. And so kids is really, everything in kids is true to real life. It actually happened except Jenny, uh, Jenny having HIV. Jenny is the only made up character in in the film. Yeah, and she's there because I didn't want to do a documentary, and I needed something so I could so I could make make the film um, make the film um, narrative right. Yeah, and so I just reverted back to the old uh, maiden tied in the railroad tracks with the train coming yeah, right, and the right. heroes rushing to save her. Right, and so that was the that was the idea. So Jenny's made up, and then I tied all the true stuff of skateboarders from that I knew with it, and I wrote this one page treatment. 
uh, with, um, and I called a friend of mine, Jim Lewis, uh, who's, a, who's a well-known novelist and uh, writes about art, and I told him the story I wanted to tell, and he helped me write this one-page uh, um, a treatment with the story, right? And, and I said, I like 24-hour movies. I want everything that's, that I've seen happen in the last three years, I want it all crammed into this 24-hour movie to make it exciting. Yeah. And I thought of this uh, character, Jenny, that had HIV, from a, got, yeah. it, got it from her first sexual experience. And then I said, you know, uh, now, now, now I know the story, the beginning, the middle, the end, everything that happens, but I'm not really a writer. And since I did Tulsa from the inside, I need a kid from the inside to write it, but there are no kid skateboard writers I know. And then I thought, hey, I met a kid a year ago that told me he was a writer named Harmony who told me that he'd written this little 20-minute screenplay when he was in high school. So I called him up. This is a year later after I met him briefly in the Washington Square. I called him and I said, Harmony, I said, Larry Clark, you told me you wrote this little 20-minute screenplay. Bring it over and let me read it. So he brought it over. I read it. It was brilliant. And it was the kind of a story that wouldn't please adults. And right. most, most people that age write for their teachers to please adults. Right. And this would not please adults. So I asked him to write kids. And he said, I've been waiting all my life to, to, to write this. And uh, he was 19 then. He, just, he, um, he was 18 when I met him. He just got out of high school. And then he went to NYU uh, for a year. And I told him to quit. I made him quit school. Yeah. And uh, he wrote uh, kids. He went to his grandma's house uh, with one sheet of paper with the story and wrote this brilliant, brilliant, brilliant screenplay, all the dialogue. And as I said, the movie is, except for that one little improv of the four boys on the couch, it's all of Harmony's words. And I made the kids say the, say the script. And Harmony wrote the brilliant script, and he also wrote the brilliant script for Ken Park from my diaries. And yeah, uh, and what um, happened with Another Day in Paradise? That was uh, how, what was the story on that? Another movie? Day in Paradise was my second film. Um, someone had sent me an unpublished manuscript by this ex-convict named Eddie Little. Yeah, who was uh, on his way back to the penitentiary, and he yeah. was in a rehab in Sun Valley, California, the worst rehab I've ever been in. Hot. All uh, this little house full of ex-convicts, all these burly guys with tattoos uh, on their face and necks and arms and the whole body, waiting to go in front of a judge and trying to get clean so maybe they wouldn't get so much time. And I talked Eddie into optioning his uh, manuscript, unpublished manuscript called yeah. Another Day in Paradise. And, and then I met a young writer, Christopher Landon, who was uh, Michael Landon's uh, son, one, yeah. of, one of his sons. A, a youngest son, I think, and uh, Christopher wrote this screenplay uh, that was close enough that that uh, that I could get the money and make the movie. And then when I made the movie, I changed it around uh, and uh, incorporated myself and Jack Johnson from Tulsa and experiences that I'd had and my friends had had from Tulsa. Yeah. And incorporated that into the character of Mel, played by Jimmy Woods, James Woods. And um, um, so I changed the script all around. And um, uh, so, uh, 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 so James Wood's character of Mel is half Eddie Little's manuscript and half me. And you directed it? Me, and I directed it. And, um, and then um, Jimmy knew Melanie Griffith, and we needed like a star to get the money for it because it was like a three and a half million dollar movie or something. So we needed uh, a female star, and he knew Melanie. So he called Melanie over to his house 
who he'd worked with before. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, Jimmy and I talked Melanie into doing it. So we made it. And, yeah. um, uh, and it was a rough shoot because once again, I had to train the whole crew because it's a Hollywood crew, crew. Right. And they have all these rules. And right. every everything I'd say, they'd say, no, it's not done that way. There's this rule. It's done that way. Right. And I said, listen, pal, there are no rules. That we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it backwards. Right. They'd look at me like I was crazy. And I'd say, I don't know. I'm, I'm only kidding. We're going to do it sideways. And so um, then I had them totally confused. So I had to train the whole fucking crew to do it the way I wanted to do because I had a very clear vision. I always have a very clear vision. I know exactly what I want, how the movie's going to look exactly. Did they do it? And they did it, yeah, but it was a fight. But they did it, and I made them do it. And um, there, there, there are little scenes in that movie that no one has ever done before that I made them do, and, and they would not do it, and I made them do it. I'd stand there and make them do it. Were, you, were you using during that? Another day in paradise, I had just come off a heroin habit, so I was clean uh, during the filming, totally clean during the filming. Yeah. But then editing it, I went back to heroin and, and edited on heroin, and my editor was uh, was uh, uh, doing cocaine, so like he's doing cocaine by the by the bags, and and I'm in the bathroom yeah. shooting heroin. Yeah, but uh, but that was editing. But during the shoot, I was perfectly clean. In every movie I've ever shot, I've shot perfectly clean. Nothing, no drugs, no alcohol, no pot, no nothing. Perfectly clean, except for the last film, Marfa Girl Two, which will be out next year. And I'd had a, a, this big spinal operation, uh, and I was all drugged up and fucked up, and I shouldn't have made the film. And I was staggering around and falling down uh, because my knees were going with arthritis. So right after I made uh, Marfa Girl 2, which I just finished cutting, it'll come out early next year um, in Marfa, Texas. Uh, I made Marfa Girl there, and then Marfa Girl 2. Uh -huh. uh, I flew back to uh, New York and had both knees replaced. Uh-huh. Uh, so I shouldn't have been making the film, but the money was there, so I made it. And I'm glad I made it, but I paid the price. So, I, uh, so by then, I was in so much pain for years for my knees and the arthritis, bone on bone. I had both knees replaced. Uh, so the only film I've ever been uh, under the influence uh, directing was Marfa Gold 2. But, but all the other films I've insisted on being straight. I'll tell you, man, you know, Bully, like, you know, that thing, you know, watching that, the experience of watching that and how raw it was, it's not, it's unlike any other movie. Unlike any movie ever made visually because yeah. it's so visually exciting. Yep. No other movie. I watch it and it's so visually exciting every scene because there's all these scenes where people are just talking to each other. It's the same information over and over and over again. Now, how are you going to make this, you know, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, compelling, compelling for an audience to sit through it. So the, so I was going to make it visually exciting. So I, so with my, uh, DP, uh, Steve Gaynor, which was his first feature, um, we, <clears throat> I decided, uh, because we were shooting so quick, we shot it in 23 days. Uh, um, we, we, uh, I was supposed to have 40 days and 30 days, and the day we started shooting, they said, Larry, we only have 23 days. It, couldn't, it, it can't be done. And I said, fuck you, I'm going to do it. So uh, Stephen and I shot it in 23 days, never saw dailies. I never saw a, f a frame of footage until the editing room. And, uh, and, uh, no shit. No shit. And what we did was we shot every single shot known to man from every movie ever made 
every different shot made. Yeah. And and <laughs> and, and when we ran out of every shot ever made, then I went to shots I would never make that I hated, like pull focus, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. And we did uh, like four or five shots that I hated that I said swore I'd never shoot. We shot for scenes with those shots. And and then I talked to Steve and I says, is there any shot that you hate you'd never do? And he said, yes, one. And we did that shot. <laughs> so every shot known to man is in that film because I'm such a good visual artist, right? And it's the most exciting visual film I've ever seen. And the actors were great. I the mean, actors Jesus, were great. Brad Renfro, Bijou Phillips, Michael Pitt, yeah. Nick Stahl, and yeah, there's a bunch fantastic, of other. Fantastic, fantastic. So when, you know, I noticed in the, in the, in the new exhibition there is sort of uh uh, a piece dedicated to Brad Renfro. Two pieces. Yeah. Two big collages. Did you know, like, what? what is it about the, you know, you seem to, like, be compelled in, like, in, in the sense that, you know, you look at photographs and you look at even the film that you shot at Tulsa, yep. these guys, this part of your life that was out of control, but also filled with possibility, this weird adolescent, the the the, the strange, you know, that neb, it's there's something loaded in electro electric about adolescence because you don't know which way it's going to go, how your life's going to be dictated, mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That energy there yes. seems to be something that you're right. attracted to. Well, well, you know, I look back at my work for 50 years, I realize that um, uh, all my work, if you look at every piece of work I've done, it's always about small groups of people, from bullies to was up rockers, yeah, about South Central uh, Latino kids. Uh, just trying to be their self, you know? Yeah. Uh, with all this peer pressure from the blacks yeah. to wear baggy clothes and yeah. cut off their hair yeah. and uh, wear and listen to up gangster rap and smoke pot. These kids wanted to grow their hair, wear tight clothes, listen to punk rock and skateboard. So they had to fight to be who they are. Every day they had to fight to, just to be who they are, who they wanted to be um, as an adolescent to try out different identities to be their self. And the reason why they're wearing su such tight clothes, and you can see their dicks and shit through their jeans, is because they were so poor that as they reached 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, they're wearing the same clothes they had when they were 11 and 12. They're so poor yeah. that they couldn't afford new clothes, so they're actually wearing clothes when they're 14 or 15. Right. They're wearing clothes that they had when they were 12. Right. And they just, you know, kept growing and wearing the same clothes. So the clothes got so tight and ripped and fucked up. So they started drawing pictures on their clothes and really, uh, you know, making their clothes quite, uh, 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 you know, like um, um, uh, different and unusual and compelling and um, uh, uh, all this soul, uh, you know. And I told them when we were shooting the film, uh, was up, Rockers? And we shot in South Central where no white people go except me. Yeah, I've been going there for years. No one's ever said a word to me because it's all about attitude. I'm not scared, and 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 I've walked through gang infested uh, neighborhoods, and um, guys have driven by in cars and shot at the house where uh, next to where I'm talking to someone. I'm leaning up against the fence talking to one of the kids. Was up rock as the car drives by slowly, so I was popping caps into the house next door. And I went, what the fuck, you know, um, to Creamer, right? I said, what the fuck, Creamer's going on? He said, oh, that happens all the time. Yeah. And um, um, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm always uh, 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 um, uh, drawn to small groups of people that you would not know about unless I made the photographs or I made the films. 
because you never knew about these 14-year-old uh, Latino kids yeah. and their life because you only saw Latinos in movies cast as gangbangers or drug addicts. But these are just normal, regular kids yeah. um, growing up in, it happened to grow up in the worst, most violent section where no white people go, it's all black and Latino, to the worst high school in America, Locke High School, which happened. The New York Times listed the, the worst high schools in America. Locke was number one. But isn't there also, there's got to be an energy to it. There's, there's something, you know, pure and vital about, you know, that period in people's lives. Yeah, well, well, like my period was, was so fucked up and unhappy because my father hated me and, uh, when I was 12 years old, I was sitting reading a comic book after school in the sixth grade. My father walked, walked in the house, and, and he'd come home around then uh, from being a traveling salesman. And for some reason, he didn't like me. Maybe I reminded him of him when he was a kid. I have no idea why. But he, but he walks in the house, and as he's walking um, past me uh, to go upstairs to his room where he always was, he isolated up yeah. there, uh, a total isolator. Um, um, he walked by and said, looked at me and said, you look like shit. And walked to a sales, never spoke to me again. Huh. My whole adolescent never spoke to me again. I couldn't wait until I was 18 years old to get out of the house. And once, uh, when I was about 17, I mean, all I wanted was my father to love me or to like me or, uh, you know. Um, once uh, a couple of old friends of his, a, a, a very old uh, friend of his from the road, from the from the business, the sale, from the crew um, that worked for the Reader Service Bureau that he that he worked yeah. uh, for, came into town. Guy Painter and Guy came Painter came in with his son who was a teenager, and Guy played golf and my father pa- played golf, and so Guy said, "Hey man, let's go play golf tomorrow." And and uh, Guy Junior uh, will bring Guy Junior and bring Larry along to play golf. So my father had no choice. So 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 we went out that day, and played golf um, uh, with a guy painter and his son, and me and my dad or my dad and I and um, um, and then after that day, uh, next day, guy painter and his son left town. My father continued playing golf and he'd go out every evening and hit a bucket of balls. Never asked me to go play golf. Never asked me to go hit a bucket of balls with him. And uh, never, never spoke to me again. And still, except that one day when Guy was in town, and I have no idea why. And uh, um, um, and when he died, about eighty-two, uh, he went to the hospital. And he was a, always a bleeder. He was like uh, uh, he had auburn hair and really like white, light skin. He couldn't get a suntan. Yeah, he went to the sun. He got sunburn. And um, uh, he was a bleeder, so he had to have like a bowel resection. Not not the worst operation in the world. It was a success, but he but he kept bleeding. They couldn't yeah. stop the bleeding, so they took him in for like uh, three more operations to stop the bleeding. And finally, I just told the doctors, I said, "Look, you know, you know, enough's enough. You know, you know, you're not gonna, you know, you know, the guy can't stand another operation. You just, you know, he keeps bleeding, keeps bleeding, keeps bleeding." Uh, so uh, the doctor called my older sister and told her that I was trying to kill my father. So. <laughs> So, um, so, so I assume my father passed away, and I still didn't love him, and I still don't love him to this day. And I, I don't hate him anymore, but I just don't give a fuck about him, you know. So uh, uh, I had an unhappy childhood, 
And um, I've always been drawn to other people's adolescence and how they grew up because everybody grows up in a different way, different situation, different environment, different parents. So all my work, um, uh, mostly uh, a lot of my work has been about that, you know. I love talking to you, and I think we got a lot in. I think so, too. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Okay, man. See you again sometime. Absolutely. Okay, you can uh, take a nap now. It's a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot for me, but I was uh, honored to talk to Mr. Clark. Uh, Again, to check out my tour dates and get some merch, go to WTFPod.com, powered by Squarespace. There's a new poster from my recent Boston shows there, if you're collecting. I think I will play a little guitar if I can get... I'm getting so fat. Shh. Don't say that out loud. But it's on set. All the food. There's just always food everywhere. It's like a fucking cruise ship. Hold on. Let me get my guitar. <laughs>